Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, maybe the most interesting cinematographer is working right now, Jonathan Fermansky. Jonathan, how are things? Uh, things are good. Thank you for asking. Uh, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Of course. What is the last thing that you finished? Was it this, uh, this live stream, uh, essentially, concert film? No, I did that in, geez, I should have looked at my calendar. I think it was in August we shot that. Okay. Um, and it just started streaming, um, what was it, the Friday after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And since then, or I'm sorry, in between then and now, I did work on a couple small documentary projects. Um, and By small, I just mean they were like, you know, interviews in a room. And uh, uh, I shot a pilot for uh, ABC. Um, so that was... That was kind of like the majority of my fall. What's the biggest difference that you've noticed shooting now during the pandemic? Well, that's a good question um, because I think it's kind of like ever evolving, you know, as people learn more about the disease itself and then they learn more about how to work within the, you know, the, the environment that we're in now. And then, you know, just people's personal comfort levels. Um, change, you know, not just from person to person, but, you know, somebody in, an, in a situation may change their, their comfort level depending on what they see going on around them. So, you know, it's, it's, kind, it's had, although like the, the nuts and bolts of the job haven't really changed that much at all, like the way that we approach is radically different. Um, for example, I think one of the first jobs I, sh- I did before, um, during the pandemic, and this was before the Bon Jovi um, uh, uh, concert, I think this was in maybe May or June, was an interview with a woman for a documentary. And um, like, I was literally the only person in the room with her and everybody else who was involved with the production was just listening in or watching or whatever on Zoom. And, you know, we figured out a way to get the camera into the Zoom so they could see the shot and all of those things. And there was no sound person. You know, we, I just set up a chair in the middle of a space and the woman walked in. There was a microphone waiting for her. She put it on herself. You know, we did the interview and then she walked out and I was the only person that she saw, you know, in person. Um, although there were maybe, you know, five or six other people who were kind of like listening in. So that was, you know that was obviously different because I was basically, I was the only hands on deck. And then when we did the Bon Jovi thing, um, you know, precautions were taken. I mean, they were, they were putting on a proper concert and we were just kind of an appendage uh, attached to that. So that uh, production had already, you know, had all of their compliances and, and, and methodologies figured out before we were involved. And they were very much, you know, they, they took it very seriously and everybody in the crew took it very seriously. And the only time that anyone took a mask off was when the band was performing because they can't sing and things like that with the mask on. So, you know, when it came down to it, that there wasn't a huge amount of impact in terms of how we shot the project, except for the fact that it was part of the story you know, that they're doing this in a pandemic. So that impacted like what we were shooting, what they were talking about, what we were covering um, and all of those things. But if it hadn't been, you know, if there hadn't been a coronavirus situation, excuse me, situation, I don't know that our approach would have been any different. I don't know that our crew would have been much bigger or anything like that, um, except for the fact that, you know, again, the concert would not have existed if it wasn't for the pandemic. So that obviously had a huge impact. Do you like keeping your crew small to begin with, like long before the pandemic? Do you enjoy that work environment, just keeping it as minimal as possible? That, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I come from a documentary background kind of in general before I started doing some more of the scripted and narrative stuff. And documentaries, you know, obviously you're working with much less and you're trying to get a lot more out of what you have. Um, and so when I first started doing scripted stuff, I did take that, um, that mentality along with me. Like I didn't, there were times I remember being on, on certain productions, certain sets, and you'd look around and you'd see like, oh my God, there's, you know, a dozen trucks and there's a hundred people milling around. And, um, you know, it kind of, it started to feel like, uh, 
you know, the, the car was driving us, you know, uh, so to speak. Um, but then, you know, as I kind of like found my feet in that world, and then as I've kind of grown into larger productions where, you know, you, you start to really understand and, and value what all of these people are bringing to the, uh, to the production and to making your job easier and better and, and making the final product that much more interesting and fun and, and, uh, and all of that. Uh, then, you know, you start to embrace it and you start to say like, wow, this is so great because I have somebody that I can talk to for specifically this, you know, and I know it's going to get taken care of. and It's going to be done really well because I know this person. It's not like, oh, I need a thing. And like the, there's three of us standing around. We have to figure out how we're going to do it. So there are, you know, there are definitely times when I'm like, you know, I would love, you know, for it just to be me, the director, the actors and a sound person in a room working together and being very, very lightweight because it's so much easier to kind of improvise in that environment. But then there are other times where I'm like, you know what, we need the full machine um, because we're doing a lot of big things and I just want to make sure that we're all doing it, you know, as, as best as we can. Well, even with the big machine, do you feel like you get to express your creative freedom a little bit more when you are a DP on a documentary? Short feature doesn't really matter. Do you get more freedom working in the documentary setting? I suppose you get more freedom from the standpoint that there is less oversight, you know, whether that's coming from, you know, executives on set or a studio or a platform or, or what have you. Um, you know, you do have like there's just, you know, fewer people around, you know, to kind of discuss things with. So you're given a lot more freedom, you know, by definition, I think. And documentaries, I think, are um, just a different experience kind of overall for a DP because, you know, you, it's on, on a scripted project, you know, I'm working with a director and we might set up a few shots and then, but then if we, if something's not working, we can take five minutes or 10 minutes and we can discuss it and we can bring in other people. We can talk about it. We can figure out the best way to get kind of like what we're going for, or, you know, just make what we have just a little bit better, you know, and all of that. But in a documentary, you have no time for any of that stuff. So the directors and producers in the nonfiction space are really relying on me to kind of like take the ball and run with it. You know, we have conversations, um, talking about style and story and, and coverage and, and what we're trying to say and all that. We have all that before we get there. But then once the camera starts rolling, it's really kind of like up to me to keep my, both of my eyes open and read the room and, and think about what's coming up next and thinking about what story pieces are missing and, and, and kind of do all of that in the moment, which can be really exhilarating. But again, like, you know, if things start to kind of turn in an di unexpected direction, you know, then you do wish that you could kind of put the camera down and like say, oh, I want to have a five minute conversation about this. But the documentaries just don't allow that. So it's kind of like a different form of creative expression, you know, if you think about it between the documentary and the scripted uh, projects. One of your early films that you also associate uh, that you were also associate producer on Loud, Quiet, Loud, the film about the mm -hmm. Pixies. What brought about your relationship with the Pixies and how did you feel behind the producer role in, in that film? Um, I mean, it was, that was an amazing experience because I came into that movie as a huge fan of the band. And I think, you know, in my, I don't want to age myself too much, but, you know, in my college years, I saw them play a few times and it was, you know, it, it was exhilarating. You know, they're, they're, they're a really fun, amazing band. And I was working with a company called Stick Figure Productions in New York, and they were doing, um, I was working specifically with them on this uh, documentary series for HBO called Family Bonds. And they were more or less just a documentary company, although I think they every now and then did commercials. Um, and one day, Stephen Cantor, who was the, uh, like the director, it was his company, he was the executive producer, he said, hey, you know, how would you feel about working on a documentary about the Pixies? And I was like, oh, my God, you know, like I just I gushed, you know, for a long, long, long time. So that's how I got on board with that project. And, you know, I mean, Stephen was the person who put it all together and he met with the band and the management uh, team and all of that. And so he was the person who made it happen. And then I was just happy to be along for the ride. And then what ended up happening as we were making the movie that was shot over almost the course of almost an entire year 
um, Stick Figure had other productions happening. So Stephen and his co-director, Matthew Galkin, had to leave um, at certain points because, you know, just they had other things going on that they had to deal with with other, other productions. And at that point, that's when it would be basically just me and a sound person either on tour with the band or at home with the band or, you know, somewhere in the world with the band. And it was kind of my responsibility to make sure that we were getting the stuff that we needed, getting stuff that came up that was like really interesting and, you know, and, and uh, all of the, even all the minutia of like, you know, having people sign, you know, releases and things like that, that kind of fell on my shoulders. So I kind of, I kind of was an associate producer, you know, by necessity more than it was design or desire. Well, that's interesting then because you went on to direct the weird world of Blowfly. Did you kind of mm-hmm. just fall into that or was that something that you actively wanted to get out there and try your hand at directing with? That, well, you know, I, uh, I remember in the years or months leading up to Blowfly, you know, a lot of people would ask me if I was interested in directing something, anything, whether it was an episode of a doc series or a documentary feature, or even, you know, at that, by that time I had started dipping my toe in scripted work. And so there would be questions about that. And I think it's, you know, a lot of DPs take that step. They go from uh, DP to director through TV or movies or what have you. Um, And I never really had much interest in it. Um, But then I think some kind of switch went off in my head that was, like, you know, you should just try it. You know, you've been around this so much, you know, you should just try it and see how you like it. And then at the same time, you know, I had a Blowfly record in my record collection. So I knew about him since I was like, you know, 16. And uh, somebody in some conversation at some point said something about Blowfly and the fact that he was still alive. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I had no idea that he was even, even alive at that point. And I just thought, like, maybe this is the thing to do. Um, And that, so I did, I guess, pursue it more than it just fell in my lap. Um, And then, you know, it just kind of, it was just one of those things that, like, well, let me just see and, like, go meet the people. And then, oh, I don't know. And the next thing you know, you're making a movie. Did you, okay, I want to take you way back then. In your your formative years, would you (laughs) say that you were looking at cinematography as the, be all end all when you were watching films and what were some of those early films that had the biggest impact on you? Well, I, um, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in the star Wars Raiders of the Raiders of the lost Ark era, close encounters, you know, those were all the movies that had, you know, huge impacts on me. And I think those are the movies that planted the seed of me wanting to work in the film business. Although at that time I had no idea what cinematography was, you know, I don't, I couldn't have told you what the director did either. I think the only, uh, uh, job description I understood was writer, you know, just because that was, you know, a little bit more obvious. Um, and then my dad, this was around the star Wars time. My dad took me to see 2001, um, because I was always like raving about star Wars. And he said, well, let's go see a real science fiction movie. And so he took me to see that. And I was like, you know, I was blown away by that movie as well. Although I was, I think seven, you know, so I just totally didn't get it, but you know, you just knew that something really interesting was going on. And that was probably the first time I thought about, you know, these, these aren't just shots just for the, just to, you know, convey information, you know, we're not just here just to like, look at these things. So we understand the story. These shots are trying to say something. And again, it all went over my head, but I just had an understanding that like, oh, something bigger is going on. And that probably, you know, was the real kind of like push towards like, oh, there's something here that's more than just like, oh, we're just making movies and it's just a thing. You know, it's like this can be an art, you know, on top of, uh, you know, a a form of entertainment. You got to see yourself work with uh, Scorsese in the late 90s with uh, My Voyage to Italy. How did how did this project come to be? And how much did you learn from him just being behind the camera, essentially, on that film? Well, actually, I mean, to be fair, you know, at that point, I was a camera assistant. And also, that was a project that Scorsese produced but didn't direct and was rarely there. And I was working with a guy, and wh- which I only say that, like, you know, that was something that was more about, like, going around and interviewing other people and archival and things like that. 
So the times that I did spend with uh, Scorsese in a room, you know, he was great. You know, he's obviously clearly very knowledgeable and he introduced us to Thelma Schoonmacher, you know, and, and so it was, it was thrilling to be around him. But to be fair, I didn't really work with him in that capacity. Um, I mean, not even as a DP, like I said, I was, I was a camera assistant. So it was, I was just a crew person. Yeah, you, you definitely weren't just behind the camera. But even when he walked onto set and was, was talking, did you do any of those film, any, any filming on that? And did he come in and just his presence would take over who was actually directing? Did you learn anything oh from God. that? But, well, no, I, I, would say, I would say he when he came into a, the room, you know, it was, I mean, all attention went to him, you know, 100%. But he was also very respectful of, I can't remember the name of the person who was directing it, but the, like I said, the DP was William Rexer, and who's a really good friend and mentor to me. And um, he, you know, in interacting with William and whoever the director was, um, he was very deferential. He was very much like, this is your project. I'm here to help, you know? And uh, it wasn't really him trying to uh, commandeer it in any way. Although, at you know, anything he said, you know, kind of went, you know, nobody was, nobody wanted to <laughs> argue with Martin Scorsese about where the camera should be or anything like that. But I think he was just very happy to be a participant more than a, a leader on, on that. What would you say that you learned the most from your time as a gaffer or assistant camera operator, or B-cam, doesn't really matter. All those early jobs that you had, what did you learn the most from that going into the world of, of director of photography? I think the two most important things were, one is you learn a lot about just how to behave on set, which sounds very obvious and should be very straightforward. But it actually, like, you know, a huge part of this job, no matter what position you are in the crew um, or the production, is psychology, you know, and being able to talk to people and being able to hear when they have problems and deal with things and have get everybody on your side when you have an idea and all of these things. So that was, I think, invaluable, you know, just like watching other people and watching how they interacted and we're learning how I didn't want to interact with people by watching others, you know, do the job. So that was great. And then the other thing was, you know, I came out of film school and, you know, I was, I kind of decided to be a DP while I was in film school. So I was already learning about lights and cameras and lenses and things like that. Film stocks, cause we shot film back then. Um, but you know, everything in that world is small. And so then when I started you know, doing uh, camera assistant work or camera operating work, and you're working on a movie like Godzilla or what, whatever, and you're seeing, okay, this is what a huge nighttime exterior looks like. You know, it's like a small army, you know, and you have to like kind of figure out how to manage all of that. And that was also like, in terms of like scaling up, I think there's a lot to learn by being a person who can be involved, but also observe at the same time. Operating the camera for as long as you did, do you find yourself just gravitating towards it and almost wanting to take over that position when you're working on a bigger production? Oh my God. It's, I think that the camera operator has the best job on set because <laughs> I, and I, it's, 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 it's so like true because, really true. Hey, I've, I've been a camera operator on many things. It's, it's hands down the best job I've, I've ever done on, on a film set. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're directly involved with every shot um, and you're, you have a creative input. You know, everybody wants to hear what you have to say about like making the shot better or here's something that we can adjust or whatever, but you take nothing home with you, you know, and you're not the person who gets the call at three in the morning from the lab, like, Oh, there's a problem or, or anything like that. Or if we lose a location, it doesn't really affect the camera operator's job. So you've got a lot of, creative, you know, uh, uh, authority and authorship, you know, in, in the production, but you have none of the stress of being a DP. So, you know, I, all that said, I love being a DP. I love being able to express myself using more than just the camera, but coming from a documentary background, again, I, you know, the camera on my shoulder is the most comfortable I ever feel, you know, when I'm on set. It just feels like it's an extension of who I am. And so anytime I get a chance to do that, 
And I do do that on some of the bigger projects and, you know, sometimes, you know, eyes roll and all of that kind of stuff. But it's not because I don't think other operators can do it. It's more like I might need that sense of satisfaction of, of holding the camera and pointing the camera and manipulating the camera um, in conjunction with everything else. Or I just want to use my hands or I just want to, I can't sit behind a monitor anymore. You know, like I just get restless and all of these things. So, you know, I value the contributions that all the camera operators I've ever worked with have brought to all of the productions that I've been able to do because, you know, frankly, there are a lot of times they do things that I can't do. Um, but for those moments where I can throw the camera on my shoulder, I do like to take advantage of it. Is there a certain setting that just makes you cringe every single time that you walk into it? Like I have to fucking like this now. Um, I don't know that there's anything universal. I will say that I'm not a big fan of shooting on a stage and um, it's, I understand that that's a weird thing to say because that's such a, such a huge part of the job and the industry. Um, but I just find myself a little bit more inspired when I'm working in the real world. Um, and there are obviously there are, there are prices that you pay for working in the real world in terms of like, you know, one of the worst things that you can be kind of like painted like I let me put it this way one of the worst corners you can be painted into is when you're on the 40th floor of a high-rise building in New York City and your the schedule mandates that you shoot at a certain time and the sun isn't in the right spot and there's nothing you can do about it you know and then you just have to kind of like eat it you know sort you know in a way and that is a terrible feeling you know knowing that there's really nothing else that you can do you've done everything you brightened it up you put in D on the windows or whatever you've done to try and bring it all into line like that's that's it and the stage allows you to have complete control so you'll never have that headache but i just find you know outside of those moments where you really feel like you're you know behind the eight ball um what a real location in terms of the way the light moves and interacts and bounces around and um using the camera kind of like you know as a i mean sometimes i guess if you're in a small location, you're, the, the limitations of where you can put the camera can be um, frustrating, but they can also inspire some other creative decisions that you might not have thought of. If you can just fly the wall away, you know, like, oh, now we can use the 27 instead of the uh, 21 or whatever it is. So I, I guess that is my long-winded way of, of saying that, like, I don't look forward to shooting on a stage, but I do... I mean, it's always fun to be shooting, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be upset by it. Speaking of shooting in in the real in the real world, essentially, and you enjoy doing that, you've worked a lot with musicians, mm -hmm. guys from Blowfly to even the CBGB's documentary to Vampire Weekend and Bad Brains, even mm -hmm. even the Paradise Lost documentary. Would you, would you say that music played? maybe an even bigger role in your growing up and how much does music impact you now? I, music is a huge part of my life and always has been. And I think that, um, I, I can't say that I pursued any portion of my career, like with the idea that I wanted to be kind of like around music. I, I, it kind of just happened. And I think it's a like a lucky accident for me in the same way that like, I really didn't, I wasn't seeking out scripted comedy, but I just found myself in that world. And I just feel very lucky that that's happened. And I think, you know, going back to the Pixies movie, you know, it's, it's not often that you get to work with people that you've kind of like idolized, you know, for at least, you know, the first 25 years of your life or whatever. Um, so, you know, it opens up opportunities just to see, you know, these people um, in, an environment that you'd never be able to otherwise, you know, I was working on a grateful dead thing. I should say it was the dead and company. It wasn't the grateful dead. Um, and I was working with a, a good friend of mine. Carolyn Pender was the uh, focus puller for me. It was a very simple doc shoot is just me shooting them rehearsing for their first tour. And I was standing on stage and I was basically standing like to my right, four feet away was Bob Weir. And to my left, four feet away was John Mayer. 
And, you know, at some point I had to go change a battery or something like that. And Carolyn, who's a real deadhead, you know, she said, like, you don't understand how many people would kill to be in your position right now, to be standing four feet away from Bob Weir. And I am not a deadhead. I do not like their music at all. Um, but I understand it. I get it, like, especially after working on that doc. But it's that kind of, like, thrill of being around people doing something creative, seeing the creative process. You know, it's, 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 it's impossible to beat. Have you found that shooting comedy is incredibly hard because you have to be incredibly spontaneous? Or do you think that your early days of documentary work essentially prepared you for this? I think it helped a lot. Um, I think that there aren't a lot of docs that I've done that have been so improvisational that, you know, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like we didn't have a script or we didn't have a, uh, some kind of idea of what we're going to do. I did a thing with Phil Burgers, whose kind of stage name is Dr. Brown for Netflix about, I don't know, was it six years ago or something like that? And it was conceived of as this kind of like one shot experience of him going in and out of all these stores and apartments and, and a bar and, and et cetera. And it was half an hour long. It was one it, in a perfect world is going to be one interrupted, uninterrupted shot. Um, and Phil had only written like an outline for that. And, but you know, we had, they had to get other actors and things like that. So there was a kind of a script, like quote unquote script that he, you know, had tapped out, but it was really largely improvisational. And then in terms of like constructing whatever this path was going to be with him starting in a beauty salon, and then again, like out under the street, into an apartment, into a restaurant, into another apartment, then a bar, and then on the street, you know, and all of these things that are happening in real time with real world people and our actors and, you know, 25 crew people running around like crazy folks, you know, trying to do their jobs, but stay out of the camera's way because nobody wanted to like walk into the frame at minute 28 um, or anything like that. You know, the documentary instincts were were you know hugely valuable in that situation because if i could see out of the corner of my eye something happening i could adjust like all of those things that just made me feel a lot more comfortable with like this is just going to be one experience you know there there may not be a perfect version of it because we are in the real world but that is also that's that's a feature not a bug you know for us and we're just going to roll with it and we're going to embrace it and so I think outside of things like that, most of the comedy that I've done, like Good Boys or Inside Amy Schumer, you know, I mean, they're fully scripted. And so we don't necessarily need to be so light on our feet in terms of like, where are we going to be? But we do need to make room for the actors to improvise where they are or to, for them to just kind of discover the comedy as they're going. It's not like we have to you know, light an entire room, clear it of everybody, and then just let anything happen that, you know, we want, which, frankly, I would be totally fine with. But most people don't want to work that way. They want to kind of, like, have a little bit of structure and, uh, you know, set some parameters. Here's what the shots are. But within all of that, then give us room to improvise and kind of, like, do our thing. And then that's where the, you know, the, the really funny stuff comes. Well, when you're working with guys like Gary Shandling and even the cast of Search Party, do you feel like you need to be a little bit more on your toes then because they are a little bit more improvisational? Well, I never worked with, actually, that's not true. I did work with Gary Shandling once, but it was kind of like, um, it was like a, like a tangent off of another project. When I did the Gary Shandling doc, that was after he had passed away. So it was only... Uh, interviewing his friends and contemporaries, um, but the the um, the cast of Search Party is so damn good that you know a large part of my job on that show is again giving them room to improvise and just kind of like feel things out, which is not you know what every cinematographer wants to hear that you've got four people who are going to kind of like do a lot of improv and they all need to be on camera at the same time, um, it, can be, it, 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 it can be a little limiting, you know, in terms of like how, wh where your lights can come from, where the cameras can be and all of that. 
and some people aren't into it. But, you know, not every scene on Search Party is like that. Not every scene is all four of them in a room together. So there, we have plenty of opportunities to really, you know, expand the visual language of that show. But there are times where we need to say, like, you know what, this is the four of them around a table. We need to be true to the performance and the comedy and the story, and let, let's just do that. Do you prefer to shoot television, or do you actually like the long-form feature film? That is a tough question because I do, you know, like, I'm so thankful and proud that I get to work on shows like Search Party. Um, and I think that uh, there's a lot of great stuff happening in TV. You know, uh, we watch more TV shows than we watch movies, you know, at home these days, um, which, which is great because so many TV shows are so great these days. Um, but there is something a little bit different about working on a movie as opposed to, I think, any other um, form of, you know, motion picture, uh, you know, art form or whatever you want to call it. And it just, there's, there's something about it that feels, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, this may sound like I'm belittling it a little bit, but I'm not at all, but it feels a little bit more like you're at camp, you know, and you're with these people and you're having a lot of fun and you're making something that will have a, a longer life and that people will appreciate for a lot longer than a TV show will, you know, is the sad truth of it. And I think it's just because there's so much more TV, you know, so for a TV to really stand the, I'm sorry, for a TV show to really stand the test of time, it really has to stand out above like so much other stuff. Whereas movies are things that linger with you for so much longer and things that you can enjoy as an experience and not something where it's like, okay, every 10 weeks, you know, or I'm sorry, every week for 10 weeks, you know, we get a little bit of a window into who these people are. And now it's just like, oh, here's a lovely, beautiful contained story. Um, that we can enjoy and then, you know, revisit later on, you know, if, if we love it. And I, so I think movies have that, all of that filters down to how you approach the making of the movie as opposed to the TV show as well. So there is something a little bit more special about working on films. There is lots to be said about this. Maybe the death of cinema right now, though, where do you think that the future of the film industry is going and where do you see theatrical films going in the next decade? Well, that's a complicated question, and I've talked to a bunch of my friends about it, and I think it's hard, to, it's hard to think of any, like, really obvious answer to it because, you know, uh, movie theaters are obviously financially right now in really uh, dire straits. Like, they're not... They're, there's, there's not a lot of, like, you know, light on the horizon for them. Um, at the same time, you know, it's hard to imagine, like, you know, who is going to take over these spaces in malls and, and wherever you like around the country that like the movie theaters are kind of like a specific footprint. So I think there's, there's incentive for people to keep it alive, whether that can really happen. I, I don't know, you know, like there, there, I, every article I read in Hollywood reporter or wherever seems to have a little bit more of a dire forecast about it. But all that said, you know, Companies like Netflix and Apple and Amazon and, and, and everybody are, seem to be firmly committed to the, the movie form factor as opposed to the series. So I don't think movies are necessarily going away. I don't, well, actually, I take that back. I, movies are not going away. It's just a question of how we're going to consume them. And I really hope that we figure out a way to keep movie theaters alive because there's something very special and unique about a movie-going experience um, and I can, there are, there are so many movies that I've seen in a movie theater that I know if I watch at home, I would have not enjoyed half as much. There's something about that collective experience that is irreplaceable in the same way that, you know, John Bon Jovi doing a concert for COVID remotely with no audience is wildly different than him doing a show in front of a hundred people, 5,000 people, a hundred thousand, you know, whatever the number is. It's just not something that can be replaced. So, you know, I hope we're able to ride this wave out. Um, I don't, I, I'm not a Nostradamus about these things, but, uh, but I hope, hopefully movie, movie going will not go away um, because I just think it's too, it, it's, it's too special, you know, of an experience to not have. 
okay, well, I got a two-part question then. Do you see films, I guess, taking over the festival circuit a little bit more and it becomes more of a festival experience? And how do you feel about the resurgence of drive-ins? I think the resurgence of drive-ins is great. Um, I have not been to that many, mostly because I'm relatively new to Los Angeles still. And the largest chunk of time I've spent in Los Angeles has been during the pandemic. And so we're not necessarily really looking to go to a drive-in, you know, these days. Although um, a friend of mine who's a director, he and his wife go, I think, almost every week. So, you know, there's maybe, maybe we're being a little bit too cautious about it. So I think I love, you know, I remember the driving experience from when I was a kid and I know it's just gotten better. So I think there's a lot to be said about, uh, about, about that, that way to, to, to watch a movie. Um, and hopefully those do stick around too. As for festivals, um, I don't know, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine, um, a documentary producer last week, and he was talking about Sundance and how Sundance is just going to be weird this year because it's all virtual and all of those things. And so I don't know what that means in terms of a film's, um, you know, it's uh, the, like the buzz or the lifespan or the, or the how, you know, how the deals get done and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not quite sure. Film festivals are, are great. You know, they're great to attend, even if you don't have a film in the festival because you're just surrounded by people who love movies and want to talk about movies and what they've seen and what they haven't seen. And there, there, there's that, that's super enjoyable. So like I feel about movie theaters, you know, I hope that the film festivals are able to weather the storm as well. Where would you say your favorite place to film is and where is a certain place that you've always wanted to film, but haven't had the chance to yet? Well, I, the, the place I want to film that I haven't had a chance to yet is in Antarctica because I'm dying to go to Antarctica. Um, although, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so funny because my wife and I have like wanted to go to Antarctica forever oh, <laughs> and, yeah. and, just, and just film everything. What is, what is the draw for you guys? I don't know. There's, there's something about ice. For me, I can't speak for my wife. For me, mm-hmm. it's the movie The Thing. Oh, there, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since I saw that movie, I like I could live there all the time. Something about the isolation and the cold, and maybe it's because I'm Canadian to begin with, and I just like that isolation and the cold and the weird sex and snowshoes that we're known for. I feel like it's that times a thousand down there, and mm-hmm. it just there's something weird about it, yet incredibly beautiful about it. And I've always yeah. just wanted to go shoot it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. You know, I, um, I, the closest I've been is I, I've been to the southernmost tip of Chile and uh, Argentina, the Tierra del Fuego and like Ushuaia and places like that. And even down there where, you know, it's probably not that different from being in, you know, like, you know, Calgary or, or something like that. It, in terms of like the, the landscape, it's not that different. It just feels like you're in a different, it feels like you're on the moon in, in, in some ways. And I think there, there would be some of that with Antarctica as well. You just feel like you'd be transported to like this off world place that just almost doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. And, and there's penguins and I think penguins are awesome. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons that I want to go to Antarctica and it's the bottom of the world, you know, anyway. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite place to shoot um i think that i always the 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 times i get the most excited is if, is if i'm shooting in someplace new which might go back to what i was saying earlier about not really loving shooting on sound stages um you know shooting on a location whether it's a bar or an arena or a, a mountaintop um or you know yeah i was shooting a documentary about the Kentucky Derby like three or four years ago. And we went to these rolling hills in the middle of Kentucky and the sun was setting. And I was like, I've never seen any place more beautiful in my life. Um, you know, this is, you know, it was amazing. Um, but it was because it was also, it was new for me. Um, you know, which is not to say it would be less beautiful, but it just, you know, that it's that initial kind of like elation and inspiration that you get 
from seeing like, oh, here's what the light is doing and the color and like, oh, I can kind of feel it and I can breathe it and I can smell it and want to see if I can get all that into the shot, you know, all of these ex sensory experiences that I'm having right now. So, so I guess, I guess my answer would just be like someplace new would be my favorite place to shoot. I'm working on a HUAC film myself and I've always found it interesting that you did the DOP work on Trumbo. How was that? How did that whole project come to be? And were you familiar with him before even that project came to be? I think I had a basic understanding of who he was because of a movie, which obviously was not the Brian Cranston Trumbo film, which I think is very good. But there was another movie, maybe, I think there was that movie with Robert De Niro that was loosely based on who he was. But anyway, somehow I knew kind of like of him. I didn't know a lot about him, but I knew of him. And then uh, an old friend of mine from film school, Sophia Lin, was producing that project. And I think they started with a different DP, but, you know, because it's documentary and they had to wait for, you know, certain people's availability, you know, that person couldn't commit to doing the whole thing. So then I got to kind of take over on the second half. And, um, and it was, I mean, it was really fun. It was, it was fun to watch these very talented people read his words um, and come up with, you know, some kind of way to represent what that was, not just the people talking, but like the literal words on the page, which we wanted to shoot. We wanted to have, you know, like special ways to represent that, that aren't just like, you know, the typical kind of like, oh, pan across the line or, or what have you. So, so it was a lot of fun to kind of like take that apart. That all, of course, was on a stage. So I guess I'm undercutting what I said before about shooting on a soundstage. But it was, I mean, I guess that means that I should, I should say I love shooting on sound stages too. I just prefer shooting on location. I will say that is one of my favorite documentaries and I think it oh, is awesome. because of your DP work. So <laughs> well, thank you. Great film. And everybody should go check that out if they haven't already. And, and uh, you know, I wish I could remember who that other DP was who worked on it um, before me, but uh, you know, it was, it was a hundred percent a group effort. Now, what is your favorite camera to shoot on and what is your favorite lens to shoot on? That, well, I'll, um, I'll answer the lens question first because it's a little bit easier in that I don't really have a favorite lens or lens package to shoot with. I think that they're all great, frankly, you know, like, and, and, and I'm not trying to be noncommittal about it, but like, honestly, if I went back and looked at the last 10 years of, uh, projects that I've worked on taking the documentaries out of it, because it's a little bit different. Um, I don't think I've used the same lens package for any show like more than once. Um, and it's just because like the lenses bring, you know, a personality to it that, you know, you really should embrace, you know, and I'm sure that there are people out there who say like, I only shoot on master primes or I only shoot on, you know, Canon K35s or Hawk, whatever anamorphics. And those are all great choices, but I just kind of feel like, you know, it's, I, I, I'm not intentionally using different lenses each time as much as it just seems to kind of like happen. Then I'm like, oh, I feel like this works a little bit better um, for this story that we're trying to tell. You know, this one wants to be a little more vintage. This one wants to be a little bit more modern, contrasty, warm, soft, whatever, you know, all kinds of weirdness, you know, if you want the weirdness. Um, so that's just kind of like a fun, uh, you know, uh, aspect of it that, that you can change so easily, even you can change it like through the production, you know, if you have multiple different like uh, you know, emotions that you're trying to convey with, with the photography. Um, as far as cameras, I think my favorite camera ever was, there was a little Aton camera called the A Minima, which was this tiny Super 16 camera that was about the size of, you know, a small loaf of bread. And it had um, a video tap and it had these weird magazines that were actually like stupidly complicated to load, you know, but they worked in their own way. But it was just such, it was like, you know, it was almost small enough to fit like in your pocket, obviously not. Maybe if you're wearing a trench coat, it would fit in your pocket. But it just, it was just like a liberating camera to have because 
You could slap, it had a PL mount. You could put any awesome lens you wanted on it. It had an eyepiece that had, they figured out some way that it had like no ground glass. So you're looking like directly through the lens, but it was still in focus. I can't remember exactly how they did it. Um, and it was just, it was just great. It was just a pure joy to shoot with. Um, Cause it just felt like so, you just felt so nimble and free with it. Um, but I think that taking that camera out of the equation and leaping into like digital cinema, for me, I think the, um, the area of Mira might be the best camera that has ever been made, um, at least on the digital end of it. Cause I find it to be so versatile. You can shoot a huge movie with it. You can shoot a little documentary with it. It looks amazing. Um, it's got everything, you know, in, in my opinion. That said, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit bummed because the industry has kind of moved past what the Amira can deliver in terms of like the technical specifications. So unfortunately, it's not, five years ago, it was a camera that I could use on any project that I wanted. Now, not so much. And so recently I've been shooting on Sony Venice, which I think is an amazing camera as well. And I say all this, like, I should say, like, there are many amazing cameras out there. Um, you know, I think the, the Panavision DXL2 is an amazing camera. Um, and I'm sure there's other amazing cameras, like, around the corner that we haven't even heard of yet. Uh, but I would say those two, like, historically, those two are my favorite. Okay, well, then this brings me to my next question. In a perfect world, would you rather be shooting on film or would you rather be shooting on digital? Or do you believe that a mesh of the two is actually the best form of getting the final product out there? I guess it is a mesh of the two, and I guess it would break it down like this. I would love to be able to shoot film on scripted projects and digital on documentary projects because, you know, film, I think, as a medium is just is it's so rich and lush and 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 and, and it feel, it has a texture to it that is hard to mimic digitally although of course you know there are lots of you know post production wizards out there who can really make anything look like anything but it's it's almost like relates back to the lens conversation you know you could probably sit in a VFX suite and make any lens look like any other lens but that's not a lot of fun. And it takes away some of the real world imperfections, which are uh, an enjoyable part of the process, the imperfections and not like something that you're trying to avoid. Um, although I don't really miss things like gate weave. I think gate weave is a, I have no idea why people try and introduce gate weave into their digital pro pro uh, projects. It makes no sense to me. Is um, is there a Sorry. film stock that you've always wanted to use or even a format that you've always wanted to use something like 70 mil? I, well, I, the only I've, I've shot with 65 and I did work with IMAX once, but when I did IMAX, I was a camera assistant. So I would love to shoot IMAX as a, as a DP because I feel like that's the, you know, there's a, the hugeness of it is just like, I mean, what a, what a way to completely reinvent how you're going to think about these things. And even how people see it, like assuming that, you know, it's going to be in a theater, how people watch an IMAX movie in a the theater is completely different than how they watch a non-IMAX movie. Like I remember going to see, I think it was the third Christopher Nolan Batman movie. And we're like, oh my God, you know, like we, won, we, we had to think for a long time about where we wanted to sit in the theater because it's so big, you know, it was a proper IMAX projection. And if you, you know, typically like, oh, you want to be in the middle, two thirds of the way back, blah, blah, blah. If you're doing that, then you're basically sitting underneath the people's faces in an IMAX movie. So you really want to sit like all the way at the top, you know, maybe in the, not in the very last row, but like a little bit forward. And then you're basically in line with people's eyeballs. And that's kind of like the perfect place to see it. So it kind of reinvents the way maybe not reinvents, but it, it, it makes you rethink the way that you're going to be shooting something and then the way that you're going to subsequently uh, watch it. Is there a film stock that you've always wanted to use? I don't think so. You know, I really loved, let, let's see. So 5293, I thought was an amazing film stock. And back when I was in film school and I was um, kind of like the few, few years after film school and I was shooting more on Super 16, 
um, it was uh, 72-45 was like the film stock because you could shoot with that and it looked like 35. You know, it was so clean and people would be wowed by it. You just got all of the richness and all of the detail and texture, but none of the grain. If you wanted that look, you know, it was just, it was so, it was, it was so great. Um, I think these days, if I could kind of like, you know, write my own, you know, camera package for some, you know, unknown production, I would love to either shoot IMAX because it's so big or maybe even super eight because it's so small. Um, and I just, cause they, they would be taking a big step away from digital cinema production, which while, you know, not film, um, is basically the same kind of like viewing angle, you know, uh, as, as what you're used to. So it'd be nice to do something that just stepped completely away from, from what I'm used to. Well, finally, what can we expect from you coming up? Um, well, I have another pilot, um, coming up in February, um, that I'm not sure I can talk about yet because it's one of those, you know, like, I don't think they've announced it and things like that. And then fingers crossed, um, I have a, a series and a movie lined up after that, but we'll see with coronavirus and all of that stuff, what that does for, um, people's schedules and, and, and whatnot, you know, Anytime, I guess what I've learned in, you know, however long I've been in this business is that anytime you have a bunch of work lined up just perfectly, it's guaranteed that something is going to come and, you know, disrupt that and you're not going to be able to do most of it. Um, but if I even get to do just a little bit of it, I'll be pretty happy. And then a couple of friends of mine have some documentary projects um, that I think would be really fun. And I, I think that that's just a great way to, you know, I, I the, the documentary production and scripted production offer two totally different you know kinds of fulfillment so if i can keep both of those you know uh experiences in my career then i'd be super happy well jonathan thank you so much for coming on here today i hope that we maybe no, see you. you come up to calgary and and film something sometime soon we got to oh, love it yeah we uh we, we got a panavision well yeah th thank you so much for coming on and uh yeah hopefully uh hopefully we'll chat again soon yeah thank you take care thank you for listening Make sure to catch Jonathan Fermansky at jonathanfermansky.com. You can find that in the show notes. And this concludes our broadcast day.